I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. Darren Hinch, welcome to That's Life. Thanks, mate. Good to talk. 20 years since September 11 happened, uh, yeah. and uh, I can't believe, firstly, how much time has gone past. Uh, as you get older, you just realise things just happen in the blink. When you look back on them, they happen in the blink of an eye, don't they? From now to 20 years ago, it seems like nothing to me. Yeah, but the thing is, too, that... Um People remember where they were on a certain event. I mean, if you're younger, or anybody remembers where you were when you got the news that Princess Di had died in a crash of a car in a tunnel. For older people like me, you remember where you were when you heard that President Kennedy had died or where when Marilyn Monroe had died. They're things that just stick in your mind forever, and 9-11 was certainly one of them. Well, where were you? When all that happened? Well, it happened late at night, Melbourne time, so Australian time, so a lot of Australians, like me, were asleep. The ones that were awake were probably watching television, a late night movie or something, and and suddenly it flashes on the screen, and I'm sure people who were awake thought that it was a, a Bruce Willis movie, because it seemed so unbelievable that it couldn't be real. And I'm, I, I've talked to friends who had that exact same reaction. I was asleep, but uh, luckily... I was woken up by a bloke called Darren James. And Darren James and Paul Barber and I, when we were at 3AW, had actually dined on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center when we were doing radio broadcasts out of New York. So Darren called me in shock and woke me up and said, hey, the World Trade Center's gone. And I said, what? He said, it's collapsed. And I said, what? And I started to think, knowing the World Trade Center, I thought, well, probably... 30,000 people, 40,000 people worked there. Um, and if this has happened, this is a massive story. And I was living where I am now on Securda Road, and I was working for 3AK, which is only a few hundred yards down the street. And by midnight, I, having turned on the TV and watched what was happening, I threw on a tracksuit, raced down the road to uh, 3AK in Securda Road, uh, tossed the on-air team off air, and then through that, through the night and through breakfast with Kate Bedford, who used to work for uh, 3AW, and and, and we, and I started to go, I stayed on air for about 11 hours straight because I was lucky having lived in New York, having lived in my apartment and watched the World Trade Centre be built, having dined there, having been to that little church which be down the bottom of the, in Wall, near Wall Street where, where they used as a sort of mini hospital when it all happened, I had fairly intimate knowledge of what was going on. And so we just stayed on air for hours and hours and hours and hours. And um, the story that sticks in my head most, thinking of the anniversary, was that my producers managed to find a woman who was a survivor. And she was a black woman from Queens. And she came in and she said to me, Darren, she said, I walked down like 80 steps of stairs, 80 flights of stairs. And as I was coming down, I passed a firefighter in full gear going up the stairs and panting and I gave him my water bottle and I'm sure he died. And because more than 300, probably 350 firefighters, first first responders died at 9-11, which we tend to forget. We talk about the nearly 4,000 
victims, you know, I mean, the, the people in the building and the people who jumped from the building. But these were first responders who went in there, went into a building before it collapsed, while it was collapsing, and they died. They were real heroes. They were absolute heroes. Darren, tell me about the restaurant that you guys ate in. Uh, 107th floor, I think. Oh, said. yeah, it was called, called the... Uh, Something on the, something of the world, window on the world it was called yeah and it was on the top flight of the of the building and every member of that staff died because anybody above the 90th floor whatever floor it was couldn't get out because all the stairways destroyed and stuff and the fires and whatever um, and it was the most beautiful restaurant and the view you looked up you looked up Manhattan. And the first thing in your sight was the Empire State Building, and you could see past that to the, um, you know, to the, to the gardens and everything. It was just, it was the most amazing place. Um, one, I did talk once. I'm a bit, bit hazy on memory here. I did talk when I was on Three OK afterwards. We were doing the follow-ups. I talked to the the architect of the World Trade Center, and it was built in a certain way. And I've, I'm sorry, I'm a bit hazy on why but it proved why it collapsed so easily it was built sort of in a structural manner that the uh the all those metal posts could collapse on each other and you had because of they had umpteen gallons of uh, of fuel and this is why the the terrorists chose a flight that was going to los angeles because had to have umpteen tons of fuel on board right so that's why they picked a long long distance flight but when it hit that building at, at temperatures of 900,000, 1,200 degrees, it just it melted the steel frames. And then suddenly you got melted steel frames with like 10, 12 storeys above you of absolute hundreds and thousands of tonnes of weight. And the steel frames below couldn't sustain it. And that's why you saw both buildings come down like skittles. I remember seeing a documentary about the building of the World Trade uh, Towers, and mm. uh, they used this system where they cross the steel like a like a cross, and that braces it a bit, and and that was the reason that it could be built so so high, mm. uh, and it didn't need concrete or you know other materials. That, That's uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the heat actually melted the steel. Melted the steel. Yeah. And it, I, it, I wish it, I could remember, and ironically, I've just read even since doing some research that. Apparently, a wooden um, structure is safer than a steel structure, which you'd never believe, right? And they say why is because wood will char, whereas steel will melt, mm. and therefore your structure gets gets worse. Um, and, and the other thing about all of this too, on the twentieth anniversary, so consider this: we say nearly four thousand people died at, 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 during that tragedy. Many more died afterwards. Um, firefighters who inhaled all that toxic dust. Um, people walking, running away inhaled toxic dust. There were cancers that were caused by the toxic dust. There were thousands and thousands more people who died after, I, I, I'd guess more, guess more, died after 9-11 than at 9-11. Were you awake, Darren, when the towers actually collapsed? Uh, oh yeah, you, yeah. you, you I, saw yeah. them live on television. Well, as from, I, I said, from from my from my apartment building, I saw the World Trade Center being built. I saw it going from nothing to to more than hundred stories. So I could watch from my balcony as it went up near the Statue of Liberty, 
and it was it was magic, you know, and uh, and that's why the terrorists very cleverly picked such a symbol. They also attacked the Pentagon, uh, the fourth plane, which very brave passengers who knew by then by their phone calls they knew that um, the planes had crashed into the, into the World Trade Center, so they knew that their hijacked plane wasn't going anywhere good. And it was actually, according to the experts, and I watched a doco on this the other day, the experts thought it was either going for the Capitol building or the White House, and both were evacuated. And very brave passengers, and if you watch movies about this, the guy who said, goodbye, I love you, and then ran towards the cockpit, um, they forced that plane into a nosedive, and it crashed in Pennsylvania. Um, Otherwise, it would hit the White House or the Capitol building, like the one that hit the, hit the Pentagon. The tragedy had everything, uh, and, and it was all played out on television in a way mm. that hadn't happened until. I mean, imagine if we had social media or live television during the Second World War. Uh, this was on the screens everywhere. We had pictures of the planes going into... But I said, it was, it was like, it was like a, people thought it was a Bruce Willis movie. I mean, you thought this can't be happening in real life when you when you watch the second plane plough into the building. The first plane, people thought a it was a small plane, and b it was an accident, like the plane that once flew into the Empire State Building. But they thought this was a small plane and an accident. When the second one hit, people realised it was a terrorist attack on the United States. A number of things, as I say, the the whole story has many elements to it. Uh, mm. I was reading an article about the famous photograph taken by a guy called uh, Cheney, I think his surname Yeah, the falling was. man. The falling man photograph, yeah. yeah. And when you look at that photograph, it's it's like he's diving in the Olympic Games. Uh, and it's it, the his body is positioned perfectly between the two buildings, one North Tower and South Tower, and he's right coming down the line. And you can see the different shades because one building is set back a little bit further. Mm. Um, and the whole story of that photograph is, as well, they tried to identify who that person was. They've come up with two names they think may have been. They haven't totally identified it. But uh, it was an amazing photo. Um, the, I read an article by the, the, by the uh, photographer. He was taking hundreds of photos, you know, and he'd been doing, I think he'd been doing a fashion show and suddenly started just clicking away. And uh, there was criticism saying that newspapers shouldn't have shown that picture. I thought it epitomises 9-11 more than the explosions. He was, just imagine when you think, my only, my only chance here is to jump out a window at 100 storeys up or 80 storeys up and you know you're going to die. And I read one story from a, from a survivor who said she couldn't understand, as she managed to get out the door, what this thumping noise was, a thump, thump, thump. And it turned out it was bodies hitting the pavement from mm. 80 storeys up, you know. Many, many uh, people uh, jumped and uh, it was captured mm. live on... CNN were broadcasting it live. And I think they then decided that uh, they would try and make sure that if they were showing anything, no one was identified. And then they just stopped uh, showing it uh, com completely. Yeah, but Tony, you listen to the... We've heard them now, all of us, with the stories afterwards. And I, I watched a 9-11 minute by minute just the other night on the anniversary. The phone calls from people to their loved ones saying, you know, I think I'm going to die. Goodbye. I love you. I mean, they just... Awful, and the ones from people, brave men and women on on the um, 
that fateful flight that was he heading towards the, the, the capital or the White House and, and a husband saying to his wife, we're going to make a run for it. You know, it was just bravery of the most because you know you're going to die. The other thing was the identification of the bodies, which went on for a very long time. I mean, up until, you know, four or five years ago, well, they still yeah, had Sorry, Sorry, Tony, they, they identified two again last week. Right. Yeah. Through DNA. It was just extraordinary, yeah. Well, well, I saw a family in England whose son was living in New York, working in the towers, one of the towers, with a girlfriend, fiancé, who was uh, American. Mm. And uh, every now and then they said they get uh, a, a parcel from the United States with some fragments of his body that they've identified. And uh, they, they, and he, they buried it, you know, obviously little pieces in a big coffin, you know, in, in some sort of graveyard in, in Britain. And the dad had the photographs of the fragments up there on the computer with a bit of jaw and a bit of hair and a bit of teeth and, uh, and things like that. And even years later, they, um, there was a building near the, the two World Trade Centres and they discovered bone fragments years later when they were doing some work there. That was probably the, the building they thought was going to fall down as well, probably. Um, that that brings me to the question. A lot of people you know, say there was a conspiracy that, uh, mm -hmm. that but the bomb was put underneath. And this was all done by the United States itself. Yeah, uh, yeah. Look, what do you make here, of all that? No, no, bullshit. Just bullshit. You know, it's like men didn't land on the moon. It was all, it was all filmed in, in, in a desert in Colorado. Um, there was an attack on the World Trade Center years earlier by a terrorist who tried to set a bomb off in the basement, which didn't didn't do any dam much damage. Um, why would the US do that? I mean, I don't even want to talk about it. I mean, you had Muslims died in 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 in, the, in that that thing. Jewish people died. Australian ten Australians died. It was it was a terrorist attack. These guys had trained for months on how to fly a plane. Years later, somebody said. Maybe we should have been alerted by the fact that all their training is about taking off. They didn't give a bugger about landing because all they wanted to do is to learn to fly a plane, to, to grab it, hijack it from Boston and get to Manhattan and get to the World Trade Center and, and, and destroy it. I mean, the first plane loaded with umpteen gallons of, of, of gas hit the World Trade Center at about 900 kilometres per hour. That was, you know, it was a, it was a brilliant, have to, hate to say it, a brilliant terrorist attack. They planned it. They had four targets, and they did it, and and it, and for them it worked. Um, you know, one thing I'll ask you, I've seen for years now, and it's only last this week that I, I twigged that maybe it wasn't right. There were pictures of President Bush, who at that time was giving us, giving having a session with some young kids at a school in Florida. Okay. And they're doing a, a little a little book reading session together with him and the teacher and the kids. I saw many times pictures of George Bush sitting there supposedly with a child kid's book turned upside down as an aide whispered in his ear that the, that the bomb had gone off at World Trade Center. Recently I saw a doco again and I was starting to think that maybe the book was, was photoshopped because this picture showed the president Without a book in his hands, he's still listening to his aide saying there's been an attack and he decided to keep going for two or three minutes with the kids so he didn't disturb them and then got up and left and made a speech to the nation. But I'd love to know if anybody knows that whether the, the, the book upside book in his hand was 
the nursery rhymes was 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 a was a, was a Photoshop or not? Because it made him look very silly. Yeah, look, I, I don't even remember the book to be honest. I, I the the aide, I've heard him talking about it, and what happened was before President Bush went into the classroom, there had been he knew about the first plane. But they oh, thought, did he? yeah, but they thought it was a small plane. And, yeah, uh, yeah, they thought it was just an accident. Yeah, yeah. So Bush then goes into the classroom, and uh, the teachers sort of doing the class. I don't even remember seeing any book, to be honest with you. And then I see the aide walk over to Bush, and he said he whispered into his ear, mm-hmm. "A second plane has gone into the second tower. America is under attack." Are the words he used? Then he walked away. And you look at the face, the facial re- reaction from Bush, and you can see straight away, um, uh, you know, he, he can acknowledge the gravity of it. A lot of but people. But he could- said later he didn't want to just, didn't want to scare the kids, so he stayed another couple of minutes. God knows how. And of course, we must, we can't mustn't forget in all this the history of this is that John Howard was was in a hotel um, in 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 Washington when the bomb when the plane hit the Pentagon, and he was grabbed by security agents and hustled out of there. Yeah, well, well, I mean, there were so many planes in the air that they didn't know which ones were... Uh, and but, yeah, and yeah. more may have been, you know, uh, taken over by, by hijackers, so... Well, they knew, first of all, they only thought there was one, and then there was two, and then there was three, and then there was four. And for the first time, I think, in American history... The FAA banned all flights, all land. They diverted flights to Canada. All flights, nobody could take off on a plane. That's why John Howard couldn't get out of there because um, no flight could leave America on that day. And the vice president um, had given the order to uh, U.S. Uh, f- fighter jets that um, if a uh, a plane, passenger plane, did not respond, that they should shoot it down. Think that through. They, they, the Americans gave advice. That's how serious it was. They gave advice that American fighter planes could blow up a passenger jet with maybe 90 or 150 passengers on board. Yeah, well, Richard Cheney, the vice president, um, when he heard about the plane that crashed in the farm area in Pennsylvania, mm. I think it was, he initially thought that that had been shot down. Mm. Uh, can you imagine how he felt if uh, that had happened and it was a mistake? Yeah, that, 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 that American planes had blown up a passenger jet with 150 passengers on board. Uh, absolutely uh, amazing, amazing day, amazing uh, times. No, 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 think 20 years forward. I mean, that attack on, on the World Trade Centre, um, that attack launched the war in Afghanistan, which, which Australia supported, to try and stop terrorism. That was, that was the first act of the war of terror, on terrorism. We then stayed there for years until they finally um, found and killed um, Osama bin Laden near a camp in Pakistan. And then we stayed there another 20 years until this year, until recently, when we all, all left. And who knows what chaos that's going to cause. My gut feeling now, and it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, after Osama bin Laden was assassinated and Al-Qaeda was being not destroyed but almost dismantled, that maybe we should have pulled out then, that we weren't there for nation building. We weren't there to create a new Afghanistan because 
the Russians hadn't managed it, we hadn't managed it, the Mujahideen hadn't managed it, Alexander the Great didn't manage it. So maybe that was the right time. After Osama bin Laden's death, we should have maybe pulled out. But at least we're right out there now and we'll just wait and see what happens. Mm. What it did was unleash this anger in the world, you know, uh, Westerners or some Westerners against the Islamic world, the oh, yeah. Islamic world against Westerners. And then we had all these different terrorist attacks, uh, not quite as big as September 11, but, you know, all over the world, like little spot fires. Here in Melbourne, you know, we had uh, the, uh, the the Burke Street tragedy when the Sister Malaspina, the guy for the restaurateur, the mm. cafe, was, was stabbed. Um you know things like that. Uh, the 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 bombings in the underground in uh, London, the, the the Madrid train bombings. Uh, mm. They were they were happening all over, and and white powder was being sent. You know, it was it was mm. it, it unsettled the, the entire world. And, and understandably, as as it should. I mean, you had the 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 bombing, the suicide bomber at the concert in England. You know, stuff like that. Um, we have this is awful way to put it. We have been lucky in Australia that there have not been more. Um, 9-11s, and America's been lucky there have not been more 9-11s. You know, we, we've had terrorists um, jailed in Australia only recently, and and in New Zealand you have that stabbing attack only recently in Auckland in the supermarket. Um, it, it ain't over. We know that, but at least it seems to be minimising a bit. I wanted to mention too, Darren, that the guy who took the photograph, the falling man, yeah, uh, he actually photographed Robert F. Kennedy in the on the floor of the kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel. Did he really? He was he was there that night. Yeah. With, with the kitchen attendant kneeling beside Bobby Kennedy. Correct. Trying to put a um, a napkin under his head. Yeah. He, wow. He he, he, he took uh, those photographs. I uh, didn't make that. I didn't well. make that connection. Wow. Just imagine being a professional photographer, and you have recorded two of the greatest, most tragic events in our history uh, <laughs> it's um i mean it seems easy to be a photographer you push a button and you take no. a picture but um uh, you just have to be at the right time see the right thing do the right things and you you capture this moment uh, these moments in history that are just uh, absolutely and, and also think back then pre-digital which he, he would have been you you actually physically taking the photo now, with digital cameras, you can just hold your camera up and go, ch -ch 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 -ch, and then find the best two out of them in an hour's time, you know? So so I, my, my photographer friends will hate me for this, journos, but um, it was harder then. I mean, you had a, often a big bulky camera and every picture was framed and done and you had to organise it and frame it and focus it. Now you can hold up a digital and just go, ch -ch -ch -ch, and... Uh, you hope you get something. Mm. Uh, I'm just thinking, uh, photographs that are iconic of news events that have happened around the world, mm. uh, are there any that come to mind? Uh, the first one, believe it or not, this is a question without notice, uh, the first one, as you started to say, ask the question, was the police chief in Vietnam shooting the Viet Cong suspect in the head? Right, remember that one? I remember that. He was tied yeah. up the Viet Cong suspect, yeah, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, that's number one. Number two, was the teenage girl running screaming having been napalmed in Vietnam? Yes, I remember that too. Uh, the picture of, of, that you mentioned earlier, uh, 
and I was in LA, it wasn't in the kitchen, but at the, the Ambassador Hotel, that shot of Bobby Kennedy dying near death on the floor with a waiter kneeling next door to him, and the shot of, um, of, of Secret Service men diving across the back of John F. Kennedy's car in Dallas when he was shot. I'm just thinking here of photographs that I remember and uh, when the Westgate Bridge collapsed mm. here in Melbourne, someone took a photograph just after it happened. Uh, the, the, the span would have just hit the ground and there was dust and stuff all over the place and you could see where the span was, you know, and it's no longer there. That was uh, a photograph that I think appeared on the front page of the... Uh, the old Sun newspaper back then. And I, I have mentioned this other one too, uh, I, and we've talked about it. You know, the guy who lost his family when the light plane crashed into his house uh, at uh, Essendon, Essendon Airport. Airport. And there's a famous photograph of one of his children's coffins going into the grave. And you see the coffin and you see the, the absolute unbearable grief on his face as yeah. that's happening. And that appeared in the front yeah, page. Yeah, it was a terrible thing. To, to, to lighten things up a bit before we wrap up, um, on that night, for different re on that night of that Essendon crash, for different reasons, a bloke called Dennis O'Kane and I, <laughs> at 3X Woy, we, we jumped in his car, we heard this crash had happened, we raced out to Essendon Airport because the man's house was next door to the airport and that's where the plane crashed and, and, and his family died. Um... I had not long been at the radio station. I was a journo, very new to radio, and we we hit the ground running. We pull the swing the car over on the freeway. I jump out as an old a young journo and start running towards the the scene. And Dennis O'Kane says fairly laconically, "Hey, maybe you should take a tape recorder." I had I had my trusty notebook in my hand, but being a journo, but as a radio man, Dennis said, Dennis Arcane, as I call him, he said, maybe you should take a tape recorder. It might come in handy if you're going to do radio. And that's the, that's sad. That's very selfish. But that's that's the story I remember first up from that Essendon tragedy. Yes, uh, that happened in 1978. Uh, that's right. Uh, I think. Uh, so you would have just only arrived here in, in Melbourne back... Uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I only arrived early, yeah. And my first job on radio in Melbourne was, was 3XY, 5 to 9, Fawn and Moyle. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, that was it. And that, that was when the, that this happened, I think it was on a Friday night, and Dennis and I jumped in the car and I said, this is my big job, and raced off there with carrying my notebook, which isn't much use when you're a radio person. Yeah. Just, just thinking of things that happened live too... Um, the Hindenburg. Uh, you, you've heard the tape of the radio guy who was commentating oh, yeah. when this Hindenburg thing, this this airship that the Germans had uh, built and manufactured and had flown over, I think, from Europe over to the United to, States. To New, New Jersey. Yeah. was about to land and it bursts into flames and crashes into a... And the reason was it was powered by hydrogen from, from memory. And that's why it, um, when a spark happened, it just blew up and burned. Yeah. Uh, if you you can go on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen, have a, mm. have a listen to that radio commentary. Uh, uh, it's a famous piece of commentary uh, as the guy commentates the the, the thing bursting the, the, into flames. The, the, yeah, yeah. Now listen, tell me, oh, this is apropos nothing, but you're talking about famous broadcasts or broadcasts. Remember, um, 
this is one about a guy who wasn't a great friend of mine, but he replaced me on 3AW. It was Murray Nickel. And he actually broadcast live from Adelaide as he watched his own house burn down. And that was an awful but great moment of, of, of radio. During the uh, Ash Wednesday bushfires yeah. of 1983, yeah. hit Adelaide and uh, South Australia and Victoria on the same day. And, uh, yeah, it was. Um, he's talking about... Um, I haven't heard that for a long time. But yeah, his own house going. And his I mean, photographs and all of the things in there. And I remember mm. him talking about that. Uh, yeah, he replaced you, didn't he? He did the yes, morning he did. He program for a while. He did, he did yeah. Um, Ash Wednesday actually uh, sticks in my head because in the, the, there was a fire two weeks before Ash Wednesday in, in near Mount Macedon, Wood End, right? And uh, it, it, it affected my area dreadfully. The house above me and the house below me burned down. Um, I think God was a tennis player because my tennis court was uh, was preserved, but uh, the barns went, my tractors went, my fences went. The heat was so strong, I had a wooden house made out of Canadian cedar. A bowl of eggs on the kitchen table exploded, but the house didn't burn. Mm. Which is extraordinary, it's amazing, isn't and it? I still had until I sold the farm. There was a, a memory every day of, of that because there was a, a, a black scorch mark forty feet up the, the the power pole next to my house. So we were very lucky. Yeah, I just wanted to mention one more thing before yes. we wrap up, uh, uh, Darren. Um, the the captain of the fire station closest to the World Trade Center buildings. Yeah. was a guy called Captain Dennis Tardio. He's still alive. Is that right? He's on LinkedIn. Uh, Damien has been trying to get in contact with him because I'd love to talk to him and find out. Do you think he's a relative? Well, someone said to me, my, one of my relations said, he, he's got our eyes. He, he has similar well, well, eyes it's, it's to such an unusual name. Tardio's an unusual name, so I suspect you're, he's right. Well, I think he'd be Italian background, although there'd be some Spanish, uh, I think, too. There's a few Tardios in uh, South America. The, the grandmother of uh, the Bolivian president about 25 years ago was, uh, was a, a Tardio. I, I had oh. a guy contact me from Amsterdam, of all places, in about 1994. I was driving through Footscray. I had my mobile phone <laughs> on my dashboard of my car, and he rings me up. I pull over, take his call, and he, he said he got my phone number from all the phone records. His name was Edmondo Tardio, and he was searching uh, the Tardio name all around the world. He'd been to the United States, and he wanted to know what I knew about Tardios here in Australia. And he's the one who told me that the grandmother of the Bolivian president... Yeah, 25 years ago was uh, was a, was a, was a tardio. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, there are, there are a few hinges around the world, um, mostly in Ireland. Uh, some, of course, in in in, in Britain uh, because my 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 grandparents came from there. Um, yeah, but mostly I always thought that my background was German. Hints, but it's not apparently. Um, so, but there are a few. I get there are a few hinges in Australia. Once there's a woman in Australia called Hinch. In Melbourne, and when I was having, you know, getting into trouble on 3AW, I got a phone call from her family saying, we're getting calls all the time about, you know, abusing us. And luckily she had a, a grandfather who didn't speak English, so she'd get him to answer the phone. <laughs> 
Oh, I, did, I, did, I did send us a bunch of flowers, I must admit. You, you've created havoc where you don't realise. Uh, have you well, ever done well, a well, DNA test? Long, wait, wait, Tony. Once my brother Desmond Des arrived from New Zealand to Melbourne to visit me, he's at the airport and he hands over his passport and the officer looked out and said, Hinch. He said, yeah. He said, Darren Hinch. He said, yeah, related. He's my brother. He said, oh, you poor bastard, and let him go walk through. <laughs> One more thing. Have you ever done a DNA test? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to find relatives and stuff. Uh... Oh, well, oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a new show. It's on SBS, and uh, uh, Jackie Weaver calls it Where the Bleep Are You? It's uh, uh, who, the, who the F are you? Uh, it's called who, Where Do You Think You Come From? Something right. like that. You know? yep. I've already done umpteen interviews for that show, Um and I was meant to go to New Zealand in March to do some work on it and then to England and possibly Ireland. But because of lockdowns, I haven't. And uh, I'm meant to go to New Zealand in October and I think that'll be cancelled as well. But sometime down the track, I'll be doing... I'm, I'm thrilled to find out my background. I mean, Jackie Weaver did it and found out that her her father, um, Artie, had some abor- early Aboriginal connections. Wow. She was a... He was an illegitimate child, and so I want to know. And anything, anything that's out there, um, good or bad, I don't care. I just so I'm fascinated, but I've been um, I've been thwarted because I can't travel because of because of lockdowns. Right. Well, there you go. I'm glad I asked the question. Then. <laughs> there that's, you go. Yeah. We've gone way over time, uh, right. Mr. Hinch. Let's uh, so... drop it, and I'll talk to you next week. Okay. Ciao.